This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, joining you again from my home office. Yes, the Penn community continues to social distance, staying productive and safe thanks to our amazing colleagues who are keeping our essential operations running, including the tech that enables us to connect with you. And speaking of connecting, you can reach us through our Twitter handle, at SXM Business, as well as my own, at Laura Zarrow. We really would love to hear from you. Know what you're thinking about, know what you're struggling with, and if you have ideas or suggestions for future shows, lay them on us. Now, when you think about the problems we're all facing, a global pandemic, systemic racism and sexism, escalating joblessness, do you struggle to make sense of it all, to figure out how to understand it, survive it, and even help to fix it? I know I do, which is why I'm exceptionally grateful for today's guests, Joanne Bagshaw and Adrian Lawrence. Both authors, advocates, and activists, they are amplifying their individual efforts to combat systemic racism and sexism by teaming up together. Dr. Joanne Bagshaw is the author of The Feminist Handbook, Practical Tools to Resist Sexism and Dismantle the Patriarchy. Joanne is an award-winning professor of psychology and women's studies at Montgomery College. She writes the popular feminist blog, The Third Wave for Psychology Today and is a certified sex therapist with a private practice in Maryland. Adrienne Lawrence is an award-winning on-air commentator and gender equity advocate, a former big law litigator who brought her own sexual harassment lawsuit against ESPN, which she ultimately settled. She's the author of Staying in the Game, the playbook for beating workplace sexual harassment, and is general counsel and director of outreach of Better Brave, a nonprofit focusing on providing employees with strategic and effective tools for beating workplace sexual harassment. So ladies, welcome to Women at Work. I'm honored and thrilled to have you here. Thank you for having us. This is exciting. Yes, thank you so much. And that was Joanne and Adrian, respectively. (laughs) Now, interestingly, you both wrote handbooks. They weren't just books about these urgent issues, but they were tools for the rest of us to try and navigate our way through them. So starting with you, Joanne, what made you write it? Sure. So I've been a therapist for decades. And what I've noticed um, over this span of time is that women question what is wrong with them throughout the developmental stages of their lives in ways that I've never heard men do. And this um, cuts across race, class, ethnicity, sexual orientation. Um, It's all women. And I wanted to write a book where women could really connect the dots from their own personal experience to more structural issues that were creating their personal problems. You know, the, the saying, the personal is political. And, um, for, you know, and, and for some women, really connecting those dots and their everyday struggles doesn't always seem intuitive. Um, and so I wanted to give this, uh, write this book as a, as a tool and a resource to help women figure that out. But also, I needed to write a book that would reach a wide audience, um, and not just for white women, but for you know all women. So it had to be, in in my opinion, a workbook style, where readers could um, identify through the reflective questions, um, and so they could really connect the dots in their own lived experience and how oppression has shaped their experience and the struggles that they have. And while we'll talk more about it later, I engaged with some of those exercises, and they were really um, informative mm-hmm. and um, opened me up in a lot of ways. So anyway, but we'll talk more about that in a minute, because Adrian, tell us about why you put this book together, because it's also a resource to help other women have a different experience. Uh, yes, thank you so much, Laura. Well, you know, when I was in my situation at ESPN, enduring sexual harassment, just looking for a guidebook that had the information in it that I needed. Because being a lawyer, I knew that sexual harassment wasn't necessarily a legal issue, that it's very rare that people sue for sexual harassment at work. And it's largely something that's behavioral. So I was out there looking on the market and everything was either a legal reference manual or uh, some kind of memoir. And hearing someone else's story and journey was not going to cut it. And so I went ahead and I wrote the book 
that I needed and that I know so many women need, especially given how complex workplace sexual harassment is and how it can impact so many aspects of your life. So I want to dive into something you and I talked about briefly when we talked the other day, but that sexual harassment in the workplace, it's not really about the act of sex, is it? It's about something more than that. Yeah, Lori, you're absolutely right. It has nothing to do with sex. You know, there is plenty of outlets for accessing sex if people want it, but what they do want is power. It's coming from an insecure place of someone wanting to make you feel small or little because they feel threatened by your presence. Maybe it was an all-male workforce and you're the only woman there. Maybe you don't adhere to certain gender norms that, you know, uh, a colleague could think are standard for someone and so they will lash out at you with come ons or put downs to make you feel small. It's basically a power play and harass holes love to play that game. Welcome back to the, the term harass holes, which is beautiful. But I want to seize on something that you said and that they're doing it to make us feel small. And Joanne, when you started talking, you opened with this idea that so many of us, so many women start, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with us? Almost as if we live lives where we think we deserve this or we can't help but have this experience. Talk to me about isn't power or the lack thereof part of that problem as well? Oh, absolutely. And, and if we think about um, the messages in, in our culture, we're talking about sexual harassment. So let's say a woman is at work being sexually harassed and no one talks about this stuff, right? Because in our general society, there's an expectation that whenever there's some kind of sexual harassment, sexual assault, it's the woman's fault that she must have done something, um, even if it's not setting boundaries, right? So it's, you know, certainly with sexual assault, we might be blaming women for what they wear or how they behave. Um, and, but also with sexual harassment, women are like, well, I've said no, I've, I've tried to do all the things that, you know, there's still something that I'm doing wrong. So I could easily see, and I've worked with women who've been sexually harassed at work, who still wonder, like, why is this always happening to me? Because they think it's only them, because women in general don't talk about it, right? Um, and, it, and it leaves us feeling very powerless because it's this constant individual analysis of there's something that I did or didn't do that created the situation. So if we can pivot that, to recognize, and this is jumping into the deep end here, mm -hmm. and I need both of your help making sure I'm drown as we talk about this, is that if we shift that from we're the reason why we are subject to this sexist behavior to there is something systemic going on that's treating us in a sexist way, it's the same dialogue as what's going on with recognizing systemic racism. And they're intertwined, right? These, this is one system that it shows up in different ways. So tell so, me more about that. So um, the patriarchy and white supremacy are intertwined, right? Because it's, it's, it's not, when we talk about the patriarchal system and who has the power, it's not all men that have the power. It is particular men. It is white, cisgender, heterosexual men of a certain class, a certain age. Um, and so that's where the, our norms come from. Um, you know, that we're obviously resisting. Um, <laughs> but every day. Yeah, yeah, but these are intertwined systems. So, Adrian, in the workplace, this is, you know, we take these systems that we see permeating our society, and it's in every level from the healthcare that we receive to how we're educated to what opportunities we have. Um, and in the workplace, it crystallizes in some very concrete ways. So, talk to me about how you see this connection between the systemic sexism and racism that's in the workplace and how people are experiencing sexual harassment. So we can see it a lot, and it initially kind of manifested in the thought that, you know, you as a woman aren't necessarily supposed to be here. Your job is in the home, and thus you shouldn't be here. Also, there's kind of a mentality that women aren't leaders and that they're better fitting for support roles and you should let a man do the leading. And so you see little inklings of that in places, but we also see it pay out or play out just largely in equal pay and the fact that, pay is unequal. And, um, you know, that kind of the underlying thought in that is that a man is the breadwinner and you as a woman do not deserve the money for which you work, even if you're performing the same task, because you don't need it. 
you know, hey, you know, you should have a spouse or a husband. And, you know, nowadays, uh, fortunately, we had the ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court just a few weeks ago uh, with the LGBTQ and extending the civil rights protections under federal law to, um, to the professional group. And how important that is, because the reality is, is as Joanne had explained, is uh, just by living your life, uh, LGBTQ are often thought as breaking those social norms of the cis hetero white male. So um, this thought that if you are a gay couple, you are not acting in a way that is a traditional, uh, you know, normalized cis relationship, and thus you must be punished for it or treated lesser than. And so it plays out every day in the workplace in very undermining, very little ways. But it's, as Joanne pointed out, part of the structural system in which we live in with these ideas of norms that should govern how we behave. So it sounds like there's two, two awful ingredients or companion realities that are intrinsic to this. One is this dehumanization that you are not, you don't deserve this, you are not worth this, you're not entitled to this because of who you are. Whether that's because you are a woman, you are a black woman, you are a trans woman, anything other than being the dominant group, it implies um, a lack of your own value as a human being. And then there's another part of it that seems like it's power driven. It's about, I don't want you taking away my power. How, where do you see the balance of these two things in the workplace? And then, Joanne, I'd love it if you'd talk about how this then affects the way that we operate as individuals when we live this way. Well, it's a lot of uh, stress, actually. And, and I did want to go back and, and, and point out something about leadership style and how that also shows up. Um, and, I, and I've had that experience myself, you know, in, the, in a workplace where there's an expectation of how uh, leaders should be, which is top-down, dominant, hierarchical, telling people what to do, right? And so that's not my leadership style. And so when I've been in a situation where I lead from the bottom up, where I give people space to make decisions, and having my own um, leadership questioned, right, as wrong, and actually having um, male colleagues say, what are you doing? What, this is completely wrong. I don't even, how are you even a leader, right? And yet, and yet the reality is, is that everything that was occurring was beautiful, but they felt uncomfortable because they didn't know what to do and it wasn't their uh, style. It was out of their comfort zone. And I think that that plays a role too um, when we're looking at sort of like the consequences of just showing up and being ourselves as women in the workforce, right? And so we do things differently and it, and, you know, it does threaten men in many different ways, even just, you know, the way that we might communicate about things or make a leadership decision. So Adrian, of these, it seems these multiple factors, uh, the fundamental respect or lack thereof for another person and anxiety about your own power position, then a discomfort with ways that are different from yours. How do you see these things factoring into the sexual harassment that is an epidemic in the workplace? Oh, it's, uh, it's a significant factor in terms of how it comes in because, um, you know, maintaining that sense of dominance and having your culture, your way, people who look like you, uh, be the individuals who are leading and who are calling shots and deciding what happens and what doesn't happen and who's present and, who, and who's not present. That is so, it's just so ingrained in so many people and they built their identities around it to the point where they cannot be open to the presence of others. And, you know, sure, occasionally they may allow it, but at the same time, they will find ways to minimize, degrade, undermine, uh, just so that they can really feel comfortable by just having that homogenous group. And it's very unfortunate, especially because uh, there is a plethora of research showing that the more diversity you have in your workplace at all levels, the more productive and financially lucrative your business will be. <laughs> and yet people would rather, hey, let me just have this group that looks like me because I feel comfortable. Um, so as far as I'm concerned, this is a, a real problem with insecurity and it's an expensive one. 
<laughs> it is indeed. By the way, for those of you who just tuned in, this is Women at Work on Business Radio here on Sirius XM channel 132. And I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I'm talking with Joanne Bagshaw, author of The Feminist Handbook, and Adrian Lawrence, author of Staying in the Game. So as we talk about this stuff, which we know has been um, painfully true for a really long time, um, fortunately, coming into public discourse um, in a way that's long overdue. One of the things that we also know is not everyone is, um, shall I say guilty, consciously guilty, but everyone has room to learn and grow. How do we help people learn to see these challenges, see these mistakes, see this, um, these systemic problems and change? and move into a place of self-awareness and allyship. Joanne, well, you're the therapist on the team. <laughs> Why don't we start with you? <laughs> well, to get people to change, they have to be motivated to change, right? So first of all, um, we can't ever make people change by telling them you need to change. And I don't think that shame really works. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, not that there are times that we all, you know, particularly uh, on Facebook or something, feel like we want to write that comment. But, um, but shame doesn't necessarily work. But finding some way to, you know, if we can connect with people to motivate them to change. And I discussed that a little bit in my book when I'm writing about how to handle microaggressions. So one way is to create um, cognitive dissonance in other people, right? So we don't like to be uncomfortable with our, um, you know, our thoughts and our behavior, who we think we are and how we act. So when somebody is, you know, saying something that's a microaggression or, um, not, you know, not speaking up or something, one way that we can stimulate that in them is to say, hey, you know, I, I know how much, um, it, how important it is to you to, to be anti-racist, to stand up against sexism. And I'm just curious why you didn't say anything in the meeting before. So right. So give me an, let's take a step back for people that are not familiar with that term, what a microaggression is, what it is, an example of it, so that we can make real that idea of how we can confront them when they happen in real time and also learn to not commit them. Sure. So microaggression is a subtle form of discrimination that sort of leaks out in a comment like telling a, a black woman or man, wow, you sound so articulate. Um, all women have been told to smile, right? So in my women's studies classes, when I ask the class, how many of you have been told by a man to smile? Every single woman, you know, holds her hand up and the men are confused, right? Because no one ever tells men to smile. You know, those sorts of things. Um, asking someone, you know, what country are you from? And, you know, here they're, you know, we're born in the United States, something like that, right? And so, so at the yeah. heart of these mm -hmm. is an insensitivity mm -hmm. to their experience as it differs from your own. So an easy one, I think, to explain is that the issue of telling a woman to smile is that we should be delightful and happy and like the lovely flower, um, you know, that goes with sunshine through the world as opposed to serious um, creatures living complex lives and taking on weighty subjects. Exactly. We're not just there to be delightful. You're revealing um, a bias that you have. And we've all said microaggressions, right? No one is really above that, but certainly some people are not even conscious or willing or, you know, to, to really even identify or acknowledge it. Um, but taking that time out to, to come back and say, you know, hey, I, you know, I'm so, you're such an advocate for marginalized people or something, maybe in some other ways. I don't know. Whatever is true, right? You want to say what's true. Um, <laughs> you know, I was surprised that you didn't speak up in the meeting. Um, this actually came up uh, for me with one of my colleagues who was telling me that another colleague, I'm speaking vaguely, obviously, in purpose, um, but another colleague had said something really offensively sexist, um, a male uh, administrator said something sexist about a female administrator. And the male who overheard it told me about it, but he did not say anything. He did not stand up to the administrator. He knew it was wrong. He knew it was enough wrong to tell the author of the feminist handbook about it. <laughs> right. But, but didn't step forward to stop it. Right. And I said, hey, wow, that really was sexist. That was terrible. But hey, can you do me a favor? The next time that you hear that person saying something like that, could you speak up? 
and say, hey, that's not cool, whatever. It doesn't even have to be, you know, an outstanding statement, but even just some kind of pushback, like, you know, that's not cool, or that was sexist, or what do you mean by that? Adrian, in the workplace, there are microaggressions, and then there, and it's almost like it's a grayscale that moves into the grotesque misconduct that comprises sexual harassment. Um, especially going back to um, some of what Joanne wrote about in the book and the motivation of what's wrong with us and also how we can know that our own individual experiences are not unique to us, but a little more global. How in the workplace can we sort when we're experiencing those microaggressions and when they start to show us a pattern that's adding up to a hostile workplace? All right. So um, when we think about hostile workplace foremost, it's, it's largely a legal term. And that one is just so difficult to meet. Um, essentially, the law is written by men and often interpreted by them. And the bar has been set incredibly high. So we don't even want to touch it because getting there is very difficult to begin with. But I can tell you that no matter what the legal bar is, that um, as Joanne knows, the psychological consequences and the professional consequences of experiencing microaggressions uh, and sexual assaults, sexual violence in the workplace, it's just they're equally detrimental. And so you have little things that could be um, kind of as Joanne hit on, you know, you did a really good job on that report for a woman. Um, those kind of in, that reveal implicit biases that are problematic to someone um, calling you the C word or groping your breasts. Um, and regardless, it creates an environment in which you are demeaned, where you are berated, belittled, and it really it starts to eat at you psychologically and it can manifest itself uh, in terms of your work performance in addition to your mental health. And it can manifest itself on the other end when it comes to how you're paid, how you're treated. But being in an environment where you are essentially being torn down, even in the littlest slights, that can be extremely problematic uh, for all aspects of your being. So I want to probe that a little bit more because the problems are enormous and they're pernicious. And so it sounds like it's um, a, a way that you get repeatedly traumatized at work mm -hmm. and at the same time disenfranchised. Mm -hmm. Yep, that's, that's exactly it. And unfortunately, more of us get it than others and we get it in different ways. Uh, for instance, research has shown that white women get more put downs um, you know, maybe snide comments and microaggressions tearing you down, whereas black women get more come-ons. And that's a feature of the legacy of slavery and black women being hypersexualized and our bodies being seen as just walking Jezebels, essentially. Um, and it just, it differs uh, in a lot of areas in terms of how uh, harass holes will target primarily women and find ways to attack your self-confidence and try to get you to play small. And whether they are fully conscious of what they're doing, oftentimes they're just playing on stereotypes or things that they know will really get to you, and they do. So in with the few minutes that we have left, I want to try and understand and probe this pattern a little bit more because of this difference that white women will experience versus black women. And um, and I can't remember which of the two books it was in because I was reading them side by side. But it, it really, um, I thought, was a provocative and informative statement about how the degree to which you comply with expectations of the power structure is the degree to which you are praised or left alone. So that a woman who presents um, with, you know, curled hair and a skirt and heels and a soft voice and is non-confrontational um, are less likely to experience sexual harassment than a woman who comes in asserting her own equality and presenting in the workplace on her own terms. So first of all, which of the two of you wrote about it? Adrian, I think. Okay, <laughs> yeah. I thought it was me too, but I was just like, I don't know. Yeah, good one. Oh, yeah, oh. you did. We're going to give you credit at least here. Sure. So talk to me about that difference between um, that combined experience of being traumatized and then disenfranchised based on how you're presenting. Uh, essentially, um, for example, in my case, you know, having grown up largely raised by males and uh, in a male-dominated environment, I, I tend to be extremely assertive, independent, and uh, dominant. And 
as a result of that, even though the fact that I wear skirts all the time and uh, appear hyper-feminine, it does not matter. It is about my persona and how it threatens kind of this uh, male-dominated cis patriarchy. And so as a result of that, when they come at me with sexual harassment, whether it's the come-ons or the put-downs, it chips away at me just a little bit more. And so that I become self-conscious, I become afraid, I become fearful, wondering what I'm doing wrong, and as a result, I play small. And I become the person that they want me to be, which is a person that is not threatening to them. Uh, but that becomes problematic uh, on various levels, because there is only so much of yourself that can change without what the consequences of PTSD, depression, anxiety, and all the things that also um, spawn from sexual harassment. So there will always be that underlying part of you. Um, and so, and it's, this is an especially important issue in part because the next generation coming out, Gen Z, they are more dominant, more assertive, uh, more independent uh, women. And so as they enter the workforces and also as most traditionally male-dominated work fields and occupations become open to them and they enter them, there's going to be a significant clash. And these women are going to have to be prepared. Adrian, you were talking about the intense toll that it can take on us when we experience that kind of pernicious sexism and racism in the workplace, particularly as a form of sexual harassment. This has always been an issue in the workplace. Why are you so worried about it right now? Gosh, I would say that I, um, well, I kind of just woke up to it being a significant issue as I was in an ivory tower practicing law for a while and then having the experience I did in terms of moving to ESPN, um, I realized what it's like in the real world. And then now we have a situation where there's considerable social uprising in COVID-19 so compounding that, where you know you looked at what COVID-19 created, where you have this job scarcity environment. Uh, you also have people are no longer in these professional norms and setups in an office or a workplace. The, most people are operating from home. And people don't know what their professional futures are going to look like. On top of that, with this social uprising uh, and these check on companies for not hiring Black employees or mistreating them, then, and they're pushing for a shift and a change. Essentially, what you have is power being shifted and taken away. You have a lot of people insecure about their professional uh, just longevity and the future of their careers. Also, you're having a push for more people who have been marginalized and mistreated in the workplace to get more of that opportunity and power. So you're going to have harassholes who have generally enjoyed this uh, opportunity to be able to harass and mistreat people with impunity, feeling insecure about their jobs and losing a lot of power. So on top of the normal kind of normal, unfortunately, the basic kind of sexual harassment that goes on at all times, we now have this environment where it's just going to be rampant with harassholes wanting to reclaim their power in light of COVID-19 and this social uprising. Joanne, in the research we've done at Wharton People Analytics, it's been, we've seen it reinforced that when people are confronted with, say, diversity training, that, and you were, um, I think, alluding to this kind of dynamic in the first half hour, it makes people feel bad about themselves, and they often will push back even harder on the very thing you're trying to teach them um, to leave behind or eradicate. How can we help people cope with what's going to be this pushback? How can we, if we can't stop the pushback, how do we navigate it and survive it? Well, we have to role model it. So, um, you know, uh, as individuals, we can help change the culture and do it every day. Uh, and I have a great example of this. It's not in a workplace environment, but just, uh, while I was traveling with my family, looking unofficially at colleges, um, we stopped at a college bookstore and a woman, a white woman, was looking at a book. The book was Dracula. Now, I don't know if you guys have images in your mind of what Dracula looks like, um, but uh, I do, right? So sort of a well, he, Dracula was dead, right? So he should be very pale, right? And so white, right? Um, and um, but this, the cover on this book was a brown-skinned Dracula biting into the neck of a white woman. 
So I'm just, you know, shopping. I didn't see the book, right? So, but a white woman saw the book. She's staring at the book. She looks at me and said, is this racist? And I look at the book and I said, yeah, it looks racist. Dracula should be dead and very pale and white. And he's a brown man biting into a white woman's neck. And she's like, this is definitely racist. And she marched to the counter and reported the book as racist. And it was magnificent. And it's doing things like that, taking those risks every day to just stand up and say, that's sexist, that's racist. Getting a reality check from someone. It just so happens she got a reality check from me that day. <laughs> <laughs> Which was handy. Yeah. <laughs> Brought some real authority to exactly. it. Exactly. But that's, that's how we change the culture. Um, and we support each other doing it, right? So, but, but on an individual level, we have to take responsibility when, to, to push people in that direction. Um, you know, and, and what I said before is not in a shaming way, but that doesn't mean that people aren't going to be uncomfortable. And we need to be uncomfortable. As white people, we need to be uncomfortable. So I don't mean to make it sound like we have to be nice about uh, standing up against racism. That's not going to work. Um, but that's a far cry from being shaming as well. But the same thing about pushing back against sexist behavior. Um, and what's interesting, the research shows that um, our attributions for women, the, you know, what we attribute bad behavior to, if we experience sexism, we're less likely to stand up and say it's sexist if the person who did the sexist behavior is going to have a consequence. We're more likely to think it's our fault because we don't want to get someone in trouble. And also because there's so much in our culture that messages to us that it's our fault even when it's not. Right, right, and to take um, and to caretake. So we're caretaking the people around us in a in a negative way. If you really want to caretake, then you should push back against racist and sexist behavior because that really is caretaker. There's also the pernicious pattern of saying that women deserve it when they're sexually harassed or assaulted, mm -hmm. which is you know could not be more. Um, morally bankrupt and wrong. However, it's this perpetrated notion that also ties into the ideals that were taught of what a well-behaved woman should be. Mm -hmm. And where sexuality belongs and doesn't belong, I say with air quotes, um, based on the determination of other people. So Adrian, you're nodding your head. Talk to me about how you've seen this play out and when it's playing out in the workplace. A, how can we flag it and support other people and interrupt that behavior? And how can we flag it when it's happening to us? So um, uh, to answer your second question first, I think the best way to flag it when, you're, when it's happening to you is Number one, to pay attention to your instincts. You know, you have a still small voice inside that lets you know you're uncomfortable and you have to pay attention to that because, you know, as women, we're taught to deny our instincts and to make sure men feel comfortable, you know, think that it's our fault. No, you need to elevate and learn to put yourself first and go ahead and hold tight to that. And that requires considerable confidence, but my God, if you aren't confident in yourself, who's going to be? And so you really have to step into that arena and say, nah. That, that, that didn't work for me. That wasn't a funny joke. That wasn't a joke. That was inappropriate. And you have to draw those lines. And then in terms of supporting other people, um, you know, it's, it's very difficult because in part our society is uh, really cultured to think that a woman brings it upon herself. And then also we have the dynamics of the workplace and people not wanting to mess up their paycheck uh, and so they will often, unfortunately, as research shows, they'll often, often abandon you in a sexual harassment situation unless there is kind of um, a camaraderie. Uh, but what you should do is truly be an ally, which is speaking up if you see someone being made uncomfortable, using whatever privilege or power you may have to intervene in a situation, offering someone to go to human resources if they opt to do that, offering to go with them. But essentially, doing unto others. It'd be really great if we had a little bit more of that and a little less thoughts of self-preservation. <laughs> here, here. So there's a lot to tap into there. And Joanne, um, I want to turn to you because one of the things that Adrian mentioned 
in the end of the last half and also talks about with great candor and in fact humor in her book was the enormous impact that sexual harassment in her workplace had on her emotional state. Mm -hmm. And um, the how dangerously complex the approaches to dealing with sexual harassment um, because it requires women the the ridiculous notion that you should fight back that you should complain um, and you articulate in the book Joanne that there's fight and there's flight but there's also silence as a very natural reaction um, particularly when people are experiencing assault could you help us understand that and why it exists what it is why it exists and what we can do about it so that we can give women voice yeah thank you so that's a great point to bring up and we don't always talk about that. We talk about fight or flight, but that we also have a freeze response. And that is just rooted in our nervous system. And I've worked um, for many years with rape victims. And this comes up so frequently because we think we know how we're going to react when something stressful or traumatic happens. And I've had many, many women say, I've always stood up for myself. I've always thought of myself as a fighter. And I don't know what happened, but when he grabbed me or when he touched me or when this happened, I froze. And I don't know how to explain that to my parents, my family, my husband, the police. Um, and <clears throat> unfortunately, it's our, our lack of uh, understanding of how the nervous system works, you know, in pop culture to understand that that is a natural response. Your body is protecting you in the moment by doing what it thinks in its wisdom is going to keep you the safest. Um, many years ago, when I was in graduate school at John Jay, actually, um, <laughs> where Adrian also went. Um, <laughs> uh, one of the classes that I took was uh, on trauma and we watched interviews of serial sadistic rapists. And those, uh, it was disturbing by the way, um, but they reported and they would speak about their, the victims as, as if they owned them, you know, like my victim, that sort of language. Um, they reported that if their victim fought back in any physical way, it would make them want to hurt them more. So I always use as an example when I work with rape victims who, um, or even sexual uh, harassment victims who are like, why did I freeze? That is your body's wisdom. It's keeping you safe in the moment. It doesn't mean you can't go back and do something different. It's not like, you know, you survived, you're safe right now, um, and that was the most important thing. And what you do now, you know, could be very different. We, unless you take military training, martial arts training, you may not necessarily know how, or could be able to control how your nervous system is going to respond. So Joanne, is that response in our nervous system? And I'm going to bring it down to something slightly less intense, but I, but I want to connect the dots to the microaggressions and growing harassment in the workplace. Mm -hmm. I've had the experience of somebody saying something utterly appalling to me. Mm -hmm. And I can talk a lot. And then I can't get a word out of my mouth. Sure. That thing where you remember afterwards, I wish I had said X, Y, and Z. But you're in that moment so shocked, so horrified that you're left speechless. Mm -hmm. And part of it is that it's with me, it's usually when it's happening, um, when I've experienced you know, sexual harassment in the workplace. Mm -hmm. um, so is that an aspect of it in less dangerous circumstances? Absolutely. Your nervous system doesn't know the difference between less dangerous that nuanced danger. It just responds to danger. So, so Adrian, when this is happening in the workplace, it seems like every day we're experiencing things, unfortunately, and there are women who have this throughout their careers, where we can't respond in the moment, but we have to respond afterwards. How can we do so in the safest, most productive way? Laura, that's a really good question. Um, so one of the things about the workplace situation is that they tell you, use HR, use our policies, use these, this and that. So they essentially, and, and we'll defend you or stand up for you. Because if we were in a bar, whole different, whole different system. 
But because you are in a workplace, the thought of that you have that protection mechanism in there. So there is this thought of less fear other than the potential of losing your job and facing retaliation. Um, but if you do, if you are in a situation where you need to handle it yourself, then uh, as I kind of lay out in the book, there are various ways to document and to get essentially confirmation of maybe an encounter you had to eliminate the he said, she said situation and to convey to that person that it was not okay what they did, but also to make sure, again, that you're not in a situation where that person um, is going to lie about the circumstances and what happened. And so that might include um, sending you know, a warning email documenting, hey, um, I didn't appreciate when you did this. And then the next one saying, hey, I'm going to have to a, a, a proceed as follows in the event that you continue to do these things. Uh, there are so many ways that you can communicate the fact that it is inappropriate, but it has to be communicated. For those of you who just tuned in, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, talking with Joanne Bagshaw, author of The Feminist Handbook, and Adrian Lawrence, author of Staying in the Game, The Playbook for Beating Workplace Sexual Harassment. So, Adrian, I want to build on that, that um, suggestion you just made about putting it in writing and communicating back and forth. There was a section of the book where you talked about a way of documenting both the problems that happen and good performance using two very basic tools, um, an encrypted email and an email thread. Mm -hmm. So um, noting that you should, A, everybody should also be documenting your successes, your achievements, super valuable when you go and it's time for a raise or your performance evaluation. Talk to me about how you, why an encrypted email and why the email thread as a simple tool when you're trying to document an ongoing case of sexual harassment. So Laura, foremost, you want an encrypted email because just a basic Yahoo account can get hacked. And we are in uh, the 21st century, you know, uh, employers, uh, uh, they will engage in shady means if they feel that perhaps maybe their situation is being threatened in some way or there's a legal case pending. So you want to protect yourself. And generally, employers have encrypted emails on their own, so you should have your own encrypted email as well. And then on top of that, it's just so incredibly important to make sure that you document your performance in terms of good or bad because employers will lie just as harassers will lie. Um, you know, in all the EEOC filings for sexual harassment, about 75% of those also, uh, they have a claim for retaliation because that's how it works. Unfortunately, in this uh, patriarchal world, that if you come forward about sexual harassment, uh, it, it can very much end up backfiring on you where all of a sudden there's an issue, quote unquote, with your performance, or all of a sudden, you know, no, you didn't do that good of a job when we both know that is not the case. And that should not necessarily deter you from coming forward or standing up for yourself. But if you have all of your ducks in a row, you have all the support and documentation you need, it will definitely weaken that employer's position. So I also want to back up to something that you wrote about. You made very clear that, that sexual harassment has three kind of different components to it or forms that it can take. You gave us categories that I thought were really useful to help us match against the experiences that we're having so that we know how to address them. Um, gender harassment, unwanted sexual attention, and sexual coercion. Can you talk just a little bit about what the difference is between those three things? Yes. Okay, so gender harassment, that's more of sexist behavior, sexist remarks, uh, gender-based bullying. You know, this might be sexist teasing or jokes or intimate questions related to sex, uh, sexual photos, videos, porn. Um, these are things that are really um, just kind of prodding at you because of your gender. And they can include disparaging or unprofessional comments related to your gender, um, you know, like, hey, Tits McGee, is that your case file? You know, things like that. And then there is the next category is unwanted sexual attention. And that's inappropriate and offensive sexual advances and sexual assaults. So we're talking about touching, groping, invading your space, sending you emails, phone calls of a sexual nature, sexually suggestive things. These are more of come-ons, whereas gender harassment can be more of a turn off or put down. 
And then that last category is sexual coercion. And that's something that most people think of when they think of sexual harassment, where it's a quid pro quo, tit for that, if you give me sex, I'll give you a promotion or the job, where essentially you have someone coercing sexual activity by using bribery or threatening punishment. And so we really get to see these things play out where gender harassment is more put downs, unwanted sexual attention, come ons, and then sexual coercion, which is also a come on with kind of elements of put downs in it too. So I want to probe that idea of the put downs and the gender harassment that you described, because it sounds like what it's the the core um, practice is sexualizing you and sexualizing the environment in ways that are inappropriate, offensive, um, and undermining. And however, just those two core things of sexualizing you in the workplace, there is never a time where that's appropriate. And sexualizing the workplace, never appropriate. Generally, for the most part, as I kind of explained that it's, you know, unless you are working in porn in particular, then you should not be sexualizing the workplace. And also employers that are good employers will find ways to silo sexual content. Um, For instance, one of the news outlets creates a complete and total separate room online to discuss things uh, that are sexual in nature and you get a warning popping up before you enter that digital space. And so there are ways to segregate those things so people do, are not made to feel uncomfortable. Um, but unfortunately, not all employers are really up to eliminating workplace sexual harassment and getting rid of those subtle signals that really degrade you and make you want to play small. It's bad enough or hard enough that they don't want to do it when, they, when it's obvious that they're doing it consciously. Um, there is also a way that there's a kind of um, unconscious sexualization that can happen, jokes that, ha- that emerge in groups that are all the same. Joanne, for, in an effort to increase our ability to be effective allies, to wake up to these things, what are, and your book was full of lots of different exercises, what are steps that people can take who want to start tuning in to the unconscious ways that they're contributing that, to this in the workplace? I think the first start is with yourself, right? If you really fully know yourself, the experiences that you've had, the biases that you have, the stereotypes that you carry around, then you can see that in other people. We're, we're limited by our own self-knowledge, right? So the more insight that we have, the more understanding we have other, of other people. And this and, really comes from my therapist training, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to say, I, you know, I'm consuming business books, cultural books, all kinds of information on how to understand these problems in our society. Yours was one of the first where I was guided to do a little meditation and self-reflection. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about why you put those exercises in the book and just a little bit on how people can start to use that kind of practice to um, invite these insights. Sure. So in particular, I use somatic meditation in the book. And so that means a focus on your body. And I do that because we're talking about oppression and different types of oppression. And one thing that oppression, one effect that oppression has on us as individuals is that it disconnects us from our body and our feelings. And so, you know, if you really want to do introspective work and work on yourself, you have to be present. You have to be in your body. That not only helps you know yourself and feel feelings that perhaps you haven't wanted to feel, but it also helps you stay present in the world to see what's going on around you, right? So it's, it's sort of a, a dual skill to learn, right? In that it helps you with understanding yourself, but also staying present in the world and seeing and knowing what's going on. Just as a small example, and I don't remember whether this was what I was specifically instructed to do or it was just the byproduct. I was going through one of the exercises, and I realized that I was nudgy. I was fidgeting. I all of a sudden couldn't sit still in my chair. Um, And then I read in a section that those were signs that I was being made uncomfortable by the things that I was realizing. And to be perfectly honest, part of what I was pondering was, could I recall times that I had unintentionally 
exhibit made those microaggressions. And I remember at a time that um, I'm enormously embarrassed by, I don't know if I can apologize enough, where I was trying to celebrate a black woman entrepreneur um, that was on campus to speak. And I mixed her up with another black woman entrepreneur. And it was that microaggression of not seeing somebody for who they really were. And I, in retrospect, am mortified. Um, and as I was going through this exercise, I felt all that tension rise up. So what do I do with that? As an example, just with the few minutes that we have left, if we're going to own our missteps, we're going to tune into the places we need to grow, how can we go about that? So uh, one thing that mindfulness, mindfulness meditation teaches us is to be non-judgmental about our feelings and experience. So when you feel um, racial shame, which is what it sounds like you felt, is to allow yourself to feel it without judging it okay, this is racial shame, it's uncomfortable, I hate it, I don't like the way this feels, and this is the way it feels, so I'm familiar with it, I know it. You become more resilient and able to deal with it. So when we're in a situation where we make a microaggression, and as white women, we are going to say microaggressions, right? Um, so you feel it, you know it, it's happening in your body, you've gotten used to it, you're not going to shame yourself. When you're more comfortable, it gives you that resiliency to then repair, to be able to, instead of being bogged down with your shame, to say, oh man, I, you know, I'm really sorry. I just said this thing. I apologize, you know, and, and to own it and repair it. And so it, it, that gives you um, resiliency to racial shame the more that you feel it. So I don't want to say move away from those feelings. I want to encourage people to be more familiar and comfortable with them. Well, I can't help thank you enough, both of you, for sharing your experiences, your insight, help teaching us how you've stayed resilient and what we can do um, to turn our shame into something productive to change things. So thanks, both of you. So Adrian, uh, quickly, where can people find your work and more about you? Well, my website is adrianjlawrence.com, and I'm very active on Twitter at Adrian Law, and you can catch me on Instagram at Adrian Lawrence. Fantastic. And Joanne? Also, my website is joannebagshaw.com, and I'm more active on Instagram, so you can find me there. And thank you, everyone, for listening today. If you have a question about anything you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can follow us on Twitter at SXM Business and me at Laura Zarrow. Special thanks to my producer, Patty Hall, Georgina Blackett, my sound engineer, Dion Simpkins, my at-home tech team, Ellie Zarrow, and Jeff Greenfield. You've been listening to Women at Work here on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Have a great week, everybody, and listen with open ears. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 